Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. The murder of Yvonne Fletcher, a Metropolitan Police officer, occurred on the 17th of April 1984, when she was fatally wounded by a shot fired from the Libyan Embassy on St James's Square, London, by an unknown gunman. Yvonne and her colleagues had been deployed to monitor a demonstration against the Libyan leader Gaddafi. Her death resulted in an 11-day siege of the embassy, at the end of which those inside were expelled from the country and the United Kingdom severed diplomatic relations with Libya. In this incredible interview, we speak with the man who has devoted his entire retired life to bringing Yvonne's killers to justice. John Murray cradled his friend and colleague Yvonne Fletcher in his arms whilst she slipped in and out of consciousness. He made one promise to her before she slipped away in his arms to investigate who was responsible for this horrific crime against his friend and colleague. In this one-hour episode, we talk to John about his policing career, the tragic shooting of his friend Yvonne Fletcher, and the moment he came face-to-face -face with her killer in Libya some years later. John's career and his fight for justice for Yvonne is an incredible story, and it was an honour to sit down with him recently to hear it all first-hand. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. Um, I'm incredibly honoured 
um, this morning to be speaking to a gentleman that um, his uh, photo was taken many, many years ago, back in 1984, of a young female police officer who was tragically shot and killed in London whilst doing everything that we would expect of a police officer, protecting and serving the community of London. And that police officer was Yvonne Fletcher, who sadly uh, died as a result of the injuries she sustained um, in London. But uh, the man in front of me, ready to tell us about his career, uh, his friendship and involvement with Yvonne Fletcher, is John Murray. John, welcome to the podcast. Good evening. How are you? Great. Good evening. Thank you very much. Yeah, doing well. John, listen, it's an absolute honour to have you on the podcast. And in in all of my episodes, I like to start at the beginning of somebody's career. And my first question to you would be, why policing? Well, I mean, it's a long story and it's quite simple. Um, when I was at school, um, we used to have uh, police officers come to the school, both the primary school and the secondary school. And um, they were advisors on various bits and pieces. It was, it was mainly sort of um, road traffic sort of safety. Um, but I was overawed by them. I, I mean, they, they certainly knew what they were doing and uh, they were able to help me. So... I decided at a very early stage that is something I really wanted to do. And policing, because it can sometimes be a bit confrontational in terms of dealing with people that do the wrong thing, often there's a sense of um, nervousness from family about a career which does involve correcting the wrongs of people when they make a mistake, whether they're speeding or they get involved in a bit of an altercation at the pub. What was the family's reaction to John Murray becoming a police officer in London? Well, you have to remember that I, I left Aberdeen in Scotland when I was 16 uh, and went down to the Bright Lights of London. And uh, I always remember my, my mother saying to me, we'll see you in six weeks because you won't last any longer than that. Um, <laughs> you know, I lasted 30 odd years in, in the place, so uh, I proved her wrong. Um, but during my training, and, and I didn't know this until sometime afterwards, she actually wrote a letter to the commissioner uh, of the, the, the police in London uh, asking him to look after me because she was very worried, um, which, oh, wow. uh, is a bit un- which is a bit unusual. Um, <laughs> but she did get a nice reply. Uh, and and uh, all these le- years later, I, I have seen the letter she's written and I've also seen the reply. Um, so they were a bit surprised. Um, that I, I don't think there's any doubt about that. They didn't think I'd lost. But, uh, but uh, you know, in my heart of hearts, I knew I would because I, that's what I wanted to do. And out of interest, why the move to London? Was it just a more of a busier lifestyle? Was Scotland just a bit too quiet? Well, at 16, um, I was in Aberdeen uh, one Saturday morning and uh, there was a caravan parked up uh, in, in one of the main streets um, advertising um, police cadets for London. Um, so I went in there and, and made a few inquiries. But I also uh, applied for my local force as well, which was then the North East Constabulary. Uh, then Grand Prix Police, uh, uh, now Police Scotland. Uh, and they met with the, the first ones to reply to me uh, and invited me down to, to London for two days um, um, for an interview and, and medical and, and, and tests. Uh, and of course, coming from Aberdeen to London w- w- was quite an experience. Um, you know, walking around Piccadilly Circus, Leicester Square, the bright lights, I'd never seen anything like that before. Uh, yeah. And I'd made up my mind as soon as I got here, yeah, this was a place for me, um, you know, Fortunately, I passed all the tests and I came down uh, you know, a few weeks later and uh, I've never looked back. So January 1972, you joined the Metropolitan Police Cadets 
and obviously you walked through the gates of uh, Hendon back in 72. What was that experience like back then? Uh, well, we were all youngsters. We were all 16-year-olds. Um, you know, I did, I did my training with uh, the, the, the kids from the Met, but there were also the guys there from, from Kent, sorry, uh, and the the RUC, they were all also conservatives, it was there. Um, you know, we were all sort of away from home. Um, we all stuck in. We all got on very well together. I made a lot of friends. I still have a lot of friends uh, who have been cadets. And, um, you know, it, it was probably the, one of the best times of my life because um, not only did we get fed and watered uh, and looked after, but, uh, you know, we were reasonably fit uh, and, and we learned a lot. And uh, it, it was a, a, a great start to my police career. Well, that was going to be my next question, really. What, so there are days that you look back actually quite fondly. Oh, yes, yeah. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it, it it's, as I say, it's the best thing I ever did. Uh, and when I went to training school attending uh, as a constable in 1974, I, I had the footing for it because I'd been to a police station, I'd worked in various departments as a cadet, so I, I, I had a rough idea of what was going on uh, and, and, and a very good idea what to expect once I'd finished my training. The office of constable is one that is still a very complex job in terms of the amount of legislation you need to know, policy and procedure, so that the, you execute the job very well when you graduate. How did you find the academic side of training? Was it something, you know, was it like a duck to water or was it something that challenged you a little bit? No, I, I found the, the, the training quite difficult. Um, it, it was very hard. A, a lot of study, many hours every night. I mean, back then we had to learn various reports and various laws word by word. And if, you know, if we recited them the next day and got one word wrong, then the answer was wrong, although it wasn't. Um, so it was very hard, but we were all in the same boat and we all did it together. Uh, you know, we, just, we used to sort of cut together in, in our rooms in the training school and, and test each other. So if, if someone was failing, we, we'd push something along as well. And that's what happened to me. You know, people helped me and I helped them. Uh, we all got through it. There was a period during the Met where they would put young officers into a boxing ring together to have a bit of a, a fight in, and you had to actually at some point, wear a punch from another person to understand what that looked like in terms of confrontation. Do you remember any stories of taking part in those sort of gym activities? Oh, I had, I had a few bloody noses whilst I was there. We, we did that quite a few times. <laughs> but, but you know, it, it was nothing personal. It was part of the training. And, and if I got a good thump on the nose, I made sure the other guy got a good thump on the nose. So, you know, it, it, it was good fun. It was good fun. And and again, it, it mean it made us what we you know what we what we were, and it bonded us all together. So you joined in 1972 as a 16-year-old cadet. Obviously, you couldn't graduate from the academy until you'd done the the training as a constable at the age of 18, 19, and you did graduate on the 22nd of July 1974, and was posted to uh, Bow Street Police Station, where you did all of your service within policing. Tell us about the first few weeks. Tell us about the first few weeks of graduation. What were they like? Um, it was a bit of a shock. Um, um, Bow Street Police Station, and you know, covers central London uh, and, and parts uh, part of the the boundary with the city of London. So you've got you know one extreme to the other. You've got a reasonably quiet area, but on the other hand, you've got a busy area, uh, and obviously you were you uh, you were both. Um, but it was nothing like um, the, the scenarios, if I can put it like that, a training school. This, this was the real world. Yeah. And um, you, you learned on your feet and you learned very quickly. If you didn't learn very quickly, you would fail at what you did. Um, but again, 
uh, you know, the people I worked with were very good. Um, a lot of them came from Scotland, so, you know, they looked after me as well. And um, it, it was a good, a good training good training ground for my first two years because your first two years as a constable, you are, you are on probation. And, um, you know, it, my probation period went, went very well. Uh, again, we had to do some studying. Uh, once a month, we used to go to classes. I found I, I found that again quite difficult because mm. you know I was concentrating uh, on the physical side if I can put it like that. Um, but I got through it, and, and, and the two years passed very quickly. Were there any particular incidents that you went to in the first weeks or months after graduating, which really provided you with that insight that policing was going to offer you? Lots of personal challenges in terms of dealing with conflict and sudden death. When did you realise that policing was going to be, you know, not always an easy vocation? Well, being in central London, you, you dealt with many things. Um, you know, uh, one day you, 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 you could be dealing with a sudden death. Uh, and a couple of hours later, after you dealt with that incident, you could be dealing with, with, with a pub fight or something. So, you know, you had to switch from one to the other, um, which, you know, in the early days, I'll, I'll admit, was difficult. But again, uh, with experience, uh, that, you know, that's what you did. And and you look to the people you work with because they were exactly the same when, when they first started. They learned as well from their peers. So I was learning from my peers. Um, so I've got no complaints with that at all. But it, it was hard, you know, switching from, from sort of one sad scene to a violent scene is, is difficult. Were there any particular jobs... You know, can you remember way back in the 70s when you made your first arrest and what that feeling was like, what you'd arrested the individual for and that whole process of, you know, enforcing the law as a constable? Um, my, my, I always remember my first arrest because um, it, it's something you, you'll never forget. It was actually uh, some um, some tramp, believe it or not, who uh, did a bit of shoplifting in one of the local stores in, in central London. Um so I, I, you know, I knew my powers of arrest. So I, um, I went through the procedure. But when I got the, uh, back to the police station, you have to give your evidence to the, to the sergeant, so um, you know he can accept the charge. Well, I couldn't remember the evidence, could I? Um, you know, I was so, <laughs> I was so nervous. Um, so you know, I, he said to me, "Look, calm down. Just wait a few seconds and tell me what's happened." Um, so that's exactly what I did. Um, it was nerve wracking. And, you know, it's a big step to arrest someone, no matter what it is. You know, you are taking away their freedom and, and you know, you're locking them up for a while. Um, so it is a big step. Um, but again, you learn from experience. And uh, I did that once and it didn't happen again. And what was the support like from family? Because obviously you're a long way, you're a long way from home. You know, you've got... The second family that's adopted you is is the police force, which is always another family in terms of your colleagues supporting you. But you've also got this family at home, and they're often such a significant fixture in people's lives in terms of that support. Were you able to to get that from being so far away from your, your parents and other siblings? Well, yes, I was. I mean, I was I was obviously in contact with with my family back back in Aberdeen. Uh, you know, my parents and my sister would ring me um, sort of every week. Um, but I had, um, with my friends that I'd made, in, you know, in the police in London, I had an adopted family, if I can put it like that. Uh, they would look, look after me as well. Um, a lot of the guys, we, you know, when they were off for two or three days, we'd go home to the families and stay, stay with the wife and kids or whatever. Uh, I couldn't do that because uh, I, I was in a, in a police hostel. Um, but a lot of them would invite me back with them. 
Um, so they became my adopted family. What was policing like in the uh, mid to late 70s, early 80s? What was the greatest challenge that London was facing during that period? Um, there was quite a lot of violent crime. Um, there, uh, not, not, not so much as there is now. Um, but I, I, I think it, it was completely different because the police and the public, I hasten to add, had respect. We had, we had respect for both sides. And I think the big difference is that we used to speak to people and we could be seen and we could be approachable. Um, something I, which I, I, you know, I, I'm sorry to say, I think it's sad to lack in these days. Um, but in, in central London, of course, we walked everywhere. We did, you know, there was no point in, in, in going out in vehicles because you couldn't get anywhere, you know, with the traffic being so bad. So we yeah. walked and we talked. The community policing is such an important aspect of the job because obviously the police want to be able to see they want to, they they yearn to interact with police officers it gives them a sense of reassurance and safety and i think that probably is today one of the greatest challenges is people often say well i, I don't often see my local police officers i actually wouldn't even know who they were where there was a totally completely different um nuance to policing back in the 70s 80s and 90s where you would see regularly your same local community bobbies or your local police officers walking around the streets and you'd get familiar with them well that, that, that's that's very true i mean yvonne and i uh, at bow street we, we were the first two community officers for, for covent garden uh now we, we had quite a few residents we had a lot of businesses we had a lot of restaurants and theaters and you know places of entertainment but we made it our job to visit everybody uh, we went to residence meetings. We went to church hall meetings. Uh, we went to business meetings. Uh, we would, you know, just go along. Uh, nine times out of ten, we, we would be invited. If we weren't invited, we'd pop in anyway. Um, but it it was to show the face, to say, look, if you have a problem, this is where you, you know, this is where you've got to come to. We will come and speak to you. A lot of people used to come back to the police station um, uh, with a particular problem. Uh, but they would always ask for Yvonne or myself um, because they knew us and, uh, you know, they knew what we were like. Um, and that's a difference. So let's fast forward the clock um, to the to the mid 80s. Um, you were very good friends and had worked alongside uh, Yvonne Fletcher. Tell us before we go into the, the actual specifics of April 1984, Tell us about her as a police officer and as a colleague. Well, Yvonne was very similar to myself. I, mean, I remember when she first arrived at Bow Street, I'd been there a few years. But she came, she came from a, a small village in Wiltshire, um, uh, in Senley, which was very similar, um, you know, to where I came from, um, just, just out of Aberdeen. Um, so we had that in common. So she was away from her family, uh, and, all, you know, and, and I was the same. Uh, she, recently, she was on a different shift to me, but I used to see her uh, when we used to change shifts and, and, and um, we used to work together on the other occasions. Um, then we got uh, chosen um, by, by our boss at, at Bow Street to, laugh, to look after the new recruits who would come up from training school. We, we would train them um, oh, wow. for the first couple of weeks. So we were busy doing that. And when we didn't have any recruits, because sometimes you didn't, then we would do our community work as well. Um, we worked very well together. We worked for a number of years together and uh, everybody knew us and loved us. And that's a great responsibility. You know, you go from obviously learning about the trade craft for a few years to actually then training 
the new recruits coming up. And obviously you and Yvonne were responsible for doing that from when they were coming through Bow Street. What that must be a great sense of satisfaction to be able to train and, and look after new constables coming in and guide them through those early uh, early weeks of policing because it can be quite intimidating. It, it can be, but, um, but you, you've got to have the confidence and the knowledge to do it. Uh, I mean, and I still, still see some of my colleagues, uh, you know, um, these days, and a lot of them say to me, you know, thank you for what you did. You, you taught me everything I knew. Um, I could say the same to the officers who looked after me. Although yeah. it was a slightly different system, um, it, it was still the same. So, you know, um, if you gain knowledge, You've, you've got to pass that on. If you gain experience, you've got to pass that on because if, if you don't do that, then things will go badly wrong. Let's talk about April 1984, probably a moment in your... It was a moment in time that will change your life forever. Um, you and Yvonne um, were stationed outside the Libyans, uh, Libyan, Libyan People's Bureau in St James's Square, SW1, when um, Yvonne was fatally shot. <laughs> Police are trying to identify some of these men. Pro-Gaddafi supporters gathered outside the Libyan embassy in London in 1984, countering a demonstration against the Libyan leader. Moments later, an unarmed police officer was shot. Uh, you were with her at the time. There is quite an, an iconic photo of you cradling her on the ground, um, giving her first aid and tending to her. Can you take us back? step by step as to that particular day, the shift you were on, your duties, and, and, and what happened? Well, on that particular day, on the 17th of April, 84, uh, Yvonne and I were actually working, community working. Um, we were supposed to work at eight in the morning to four in the afternoon. And um, we had a couple of meetings arranged uh, in the afternoon um, with some residents. Um, when we went to police station, um, as you do, you have a cup of tea or something first. Uh, and then we were approached by our duty sergeant to ask if we could cover two people who had uh, been required at court. They, they were going to go to the demonstration, but they had to go to court. Uh, so could Yvonne and I cover for them? And he said, it's only going to be a couple of hours, then you'll be straight back. So yeah, okay, fine. What you never used to do then was upset the duty sergeant for obvious reasons. Uh, so yes, we did. Uh, we said, yeah, no problem at all. Um, so we had a briefing by the sergeant who was going to be in charge of us at, at the uh, the, um, the People's Bureau, and we were going to be on traffic duty um, on the outer corridor, um, which was fine because the, the Libyan's People's Bureau in St James's Square uh, is actually on uh, another police station's area, Vine Street Police Station. So we were being sent down to help there. It was just a, it was just going to be a local sort of demonstration. Yeah. Um, so we left Bow Street and we went by police van to St James' Square, which is only, you know, 15 minutes away maximum. Uh, but the traffic was really bad and, and we got held up. So by the time we got there, uh, the, the local lads from Vine Street, they had been put on the traffic points, blocking the streets, blocking the traffic, blocking pedestrians. And we had to be outside the front of the embassy. Which is fine, we, you know, no problem with that. We, you know, we'd done hundreds of demonstrations. Uh, you know, it was, it was basically a, a daily occurrence, you know, on the streets of London. Um, so we were put outside the embassy. Um, that was about nine o'clock in the morning. The, the demonstration was due to start around about 10 o'clock. So we always get there early uh, for obvious reasons. What was the atmosphere like, John? Um, very pleasant. Uh, it was a nice sunny day. Um, 
you know, it, it was good. The, the demonstrators started to arrive by, by coach. A lot of them had come from Liverpool, uh, Manchester, and, you know, in the Midlands. Um, um, the, the, the coaches arrived, dropped the, the, the demonstrators off at the other side of the square, and they all walked through. We had barriers, crowd barriers uh, set up, so they would they would be behind the barriers and they would be facing the, the bureau, and um, the, the police cordon would be facing them. So they started to arrive, and they you know they were they, they were put in the in the proper place, and we started talking to them. Uh, two things with that: uh, one, you you know if you're talking to someone, you can gauge the mood, uh, you know see what they're like, uh, and. Um, be a bit more friendly, and they're friendly back to you, which is, you know, which was fine. Um, Yvonne and I changed places two or three times to speak to other people because, you know, uh, I might think something bad about someone else, but when she spoke to him, she said, "No, you're wrong. He's okay," etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we 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 swapped places two or three two or three times that morning. Uh, we were about three or four feet apart. Um, the demonstration started in earnest, and uh, it was quite noisy. Uh, a lot of shouting. Um, but we were there, ironically, to protect the people's hero um, uh, and, and prevent any disorder. Um, the next thing uh, I remember was, bearing in mind we had our back to the building, uh, I thought someone had thrown a firework, um, like a firecracker, um, yeah. only for a few seconds. But I glanced to my right uh, and I, I saw Yvonne film to the road. <clears throat> it took a couple of seconds for me to sort of realise what, what was going on. And I went over to her, uh, along with two colleagues, uh, one of them being the sergeant. And I could see that there was blood uh, coming f uh, from her uh, abdomen. Yvonne was killed outside the Libyan embassy in London in April 1984. She and John had been helping police this peaceful anti-Gaddafi protest. But moments later, the protest was disrupted. Suddenly, shots were fired from inside. And WPC Yvonne Fletcher was killed. No one's been convicted of murder. The officials inside the embassy were allowed to leave under diplomatic immunity. Um, the next thing I remember was it was quiet. Everything, you know, we're, we're in the middle of London, we're in St. James' Square, and everything went quiet. And um, it was then that we all realised that shots had been fired and she'd been hit, and everybody scattered. Wow. Um, but four of us, I think it was, were with, or three of us were with Yvonne, and we stayed there for a couple of minutes, but it seemed like hours. And at the back of my mind, I thought, goodness, if they shot once, if they shoot again, then we're all done for. Fortunately, that didn't happen. It took a couple of minutes for us to, to sort of, you know, what was going on, and we managed to pick up Yvonne, and we carried her into a side street, um, Charles II Street, which is just off St. James's Square. Um, she stopped breathing, um, so I gave her the, the kiss of life and, and my, my colleague gave her CPR and we brought her back. And then the ambulance arrived. Only one ambulance arrived initially, 
and she was placed in, back, in the back of the ambulance and I went with her. Uh, also in the ambulance, well, there were three Libyan students, demonstrators, who'd been seriously wounded. They, they were shot. Um, they were bleeding everywhere. Uh, so off we went to Westminster Hospital. On the way to the hospital, uh, Yvonne was conscious. And she said to me that her tummy was hurting. Well, I, I, I had a look and I could see it was, it was badly swollen. Um, uh, so the ambulance men, there weren't medics, there weren't sort of ambulance men then. Um, I got uh, his scissors and I cut her skirt, which seemed to relieve her pressure slightly. And she said, thank you. And she said, John says, I don't know what's, what's happening. I said, well, don't worry, you're going to be fine. But I promise you, I will find out what's happened. I will find out why and I'll find out who. Don't worry about it at the moment. But she seemed more concerned about the Libyans who were lying on, or sitting on the floor injured. And she said, what about them? I said, don't, don't worry about them. We'll get you sorted out first. They'll be fine. What seemed like hours, and it wasn't, um, in that ambulance, we arrived then at Westminster Hospital. And she was taken straight through into a resuscitation room. And I was placed in a little side room. Um, I, I must have been there for about half an hour uh, on my own. And um, a doctor came in and said uh, that uh, she had been shot, um, but she should be fine. And they were taking her straight to the operating theatre. So I thought, thank goodness, uh, you know, everything's going to be okay. About an hour and a half, two hours later, I'm still in the same room. Nobody's spoken to me. I've, I've seen nobody. Um, the same doctor came back uh, with tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm sorry, we, we've lost her. Um, she just, the, the internal injuries were just too much. Um, the bullet went straight through her and, and caused massive internal injuries. Um, it was at that point um, I broke down. Um, I didn't know what to do. I blamed myself. You know, why her, not me? All sorts of things went through my mind. And then a senior officer came into to my room and told me to go with her body um, in a vehicle to the coroner's court, which is only 150 yards down the road, <coughs> um, where the pathologist uh, was waiting. So I went in the vehicle with her body and we went to the coroner's court and she was placed in the... In the um, in the mortuary and I was instructed to stand and watch the postpartum um, which, which is something that um, I'll never forget um, the, the longest couple of hours of my life um, but I did it uh, and afterwards uh, a police car arrived and I was taken back to Bow Street Police Station which was pandemonium because some of the Libyan people who had been shot had been taken there. They were uh, in the canteen area. They were given statements. There was people everywhere. There was officers everywhere. Um, so I went and saw the duty inspector and said, look, what do you want me to do? He said, well, look, there's nothing you can do here. Uh, you might as well go home. So I said, okay, thanks very much. I said, can you uh, get me a car to give me a lift home? Oh, no, he said, I can't do that. We can't spare anybody. So you'll have to get your own way home to the tube. So I popped on the tube. I went downstairs, um, <clears throat> put my jacket on and, and got the tube home. And I always remember uh, I was sitting on the tube 
<clears throat> and there were two American young girls who were um, just standing up near me, and I could hear them talking, and, and they said, "Have you heard that, that policewoman's been shot and killed in London?" And I didn't say anything. I looked at them, and I, and I thought, "If only you knew. If only you knew." Um, and then that was it. Um, I went home, saw my wife, um, who was six months pregnant at the time. Um, so th that was pretty rough. Um, the next day, my chief superintendent came to see me, uh, told me to have that day off. And the next day, I was back at work. And that, in a nutshell, and, and very, very quickly, without going into a lot of detail, is, is what happened that day. It's quite incredible the story in terms of not only the incident but <clears throat> the post-incident after Yvonne had tragically succumbed to her injuries um, to then have you go through that post-mortem exercise at the coronial office must have been something which was incredibly challenging to overcome because as police officers we are very resilient individuals but there's nothing more confronting than the loss of a colleague. That experience must have been incredibly uncomfortable for you. It was very uncomfortable, and it's something that, that I will never, ever forget. I mean, I mean talking about it, I can, I can still see it now. Uh, I've been to post-mortem before, obviously, because we, we, we had dealt with sudden deaths before. Um, mm. But this was something, or, or somebody I knew. Um, four hours earlier, I'd been talking to. Uh, four hours earlier had been a good friend of mine uh, but there she was you know lying on, on the, the mortuary slab helpless naked defenseless and you know as far as I was concerned asking for help um, so it was very very difficult and um, as I say something I will never ever forget and never forgive because you know looking back on it now uh, that shouldn't have happened there's, there's no two ways about it that should not have happened it certainly wouldn't happen today um, but it shouldn't have happened then. Um, but, uh, you know, it did happen. I was there and I saw it. And do you do you retain anger or upset towards the police for exposing you to what was a very confronting situation? I, 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 I do, and I, I still do, because, I mean, the, the shooting incident itself is very traumatic, but... To go through that afterwards, I, I think, was probably the, the worst part of the whole ordeal. Um, I, I, I could maybe manage and deal with the, the shooting and, and what happened. Um, but to, you know, to do those things afterwards, um, I think, was wrong and, um, you know, should not have happened. Obviously, there is that incredibly... Um, it is a famous photo of you cradling Yvonne on the roadway... Um, shortly after she was shot um that was obviously shortly after that you took her into the side street you know what was the what was what was going on around you in terms of was there shock by onlookers as to what was happening were people fleeing for their lives you know what was the what was the atmosphere of the crowd like following that gunshot well people were well people were screaming um because uh, you know apart from Yvonne being shot, there were 13 other Libyans shot. You've got to remember mm -hmm. about them. Um, yeah. Some of them quite badly wounded, so that they were screaming in pain. 
you know, we, we saw officers carrying uh, people away from, from the scene. The most important thing, I think, was to get everybody away from that building. Um, although it took, uh, you know, it took us a little bit longer to do it. Uh, but get those people away first, because if, if they do uh, open fire again, there would have been no survivors at all. The words that Yvonne um, whispered to you quietly while she was in the back of the ambulance with her concern for the safety and the well-being of the others in the ambulance, I think really does go to the core of her character of empathy and passion and putting others before herself, duty and public service. Just some of the words that come to mind. Is that what you fondly remember in, of her is always putting others before herself? Well, she always did. I mean, you know, any incident she would deal with, she would she would think of other people, you know, and she would do anything at all to help anybody, you know, as I would. Um, that's, that's the way we were. That's the way we've been trained. Um, but she was always, you know, always looking after people more so than herself. You know, she was always like that. So what was the... Um the ceremonial part of Yvonne's funeral, did you play a part in, in that part of the the celebration of her life in policing? Yes, um, I, I carried her coffin uh, at Salisbury Cathedral, um, which was a great honour uh, and uh, a, you know, a real pr privilege to do that. Um, we went down to Salisbury Cathedral um, privately in, in, a, in a private bus in the, the coffin party. We went down to take us first um, because the coffin hadn't been sealed and just to pay our respects once more. And um, I went in there and um, I was the last one to leave. But before I left, I gave her a little kiss on, on, on her forehead. Uh, and it seems very strange. Uh, and again, because I remember this, and this obviously didn't happen, but I'm sure she smiled. Um, I know that didn't happen, but that's what's in my mind. She she made a little smile. Uh, anyway, uh, after that, uh, you know, the coffin was sealed and uh, off we went. And <clears throat> when I was carrying her coffin in, in, in the cathedral, and it, it it's a long way from the cathedral front door to you know to the altar. Um, but when I was walking down there with her, I was talking to her, uh, although she was still there. Uh, telling, I remember when I said, I will find out who did it, don't you worry, etc., etc. Um, um, it, it, it was a, a you know, it was a celebration of her life, uh, and I, you know, it was amazing because it, in Bow Street's uh, area that we cover, uh, Leicester Square, um, Leicester Square then was very famous for, for, for street buskers, street entertainers. You really yeah. couldn't find them anywhere, else, although they're all over the place now. <clears throat> and I always remember that as we were walking into the church, five or six of those people were there. Um, now that just wow. shows you, that just shows you, you know, the, the love and the respect they had for her. They had made that journey all the way down to Salisbury, along with a, a lot of people as well, you know, um, just to pay the respects. You must have had quite an involvement with her family um, being there when it happened obviously hearing her her last words were those are those the sort of questions that family had of you what did she say how was she what was what was that kind of interaction like it must have been very very hard 
Yeah, it, it was difficult because um, you know I, I was I was the last person to see her alive and the last people the last person she spoke to, and, and yes, you're quite right. Those are the questions that that, that mum and dad mum um, and dad asked me. Um, I remember years later that you know when I started looking at the, the whole incident myself, uh, I, I said to mum and dad that one day, I don't know when it will be, but one day, I will come back and say to you. We've done it. Unfortunately, mum and dad passed away a, a few years ago. So even though I've got where I am, I've never been able to do that. And that's one of the biggest regrets that I've had, uh, that I've never been able to say now to mum and dad, look, we did it. Well, let's let's talk about that investigation. That, that investigation was obviously quite a complex one, um, quite a large inquiry. Can you recall how that investigation went you obviously would have provided a statement and the outcome of it yeah i, I mean i did a statement at the time and, and, and you know, so many other people did as well but one of the things that um that annoyed most of us who who were there was that um, the police um didn't uh, go into the embassy of the, the people's bureau um to get the murderer the excuse given by the UK government at the time was it was um, diplomatic immunity. Um, nobody in that building had diplomatic immunity. In fact, it wasn't an embassy, it was the People's Bureau. Colonel Gaddafi, um, a few months earlier, had decreed that uh, his uh, embassies would no longer be embassies, they would no longer be diplomats, there would be People's Bureau run by his students. Um, so nobody in that building had diplomatic immunity. Um, although, as I say, that was the, the main reason why it wasn't stormed at the time. But, I, I mean, I didn't know that until, you know, some years afterwards. So so following that incident, uh, you obviously had a, a career which went some time until 1996 was uh, the period when you when you left the police. You, you were medically retired. Between 1984 and 1996... What was your policing career like? Was it a struggle after that, or is it, were you able to continue with some level of normality? No, I, I was able to continue uh, and, and, and enjoy what I did. I mean, I, I was lucky because I, I stayed at Bow Street um, for, for all my service, so I knew everybody there and everybody knew me. Um, they knew, they, you know, everybody knew what I'd, what I'd been through. Um, so, in, in some respects, I, I was looked after. Um, but no, it. It, it was it, when I first went back, um, you know, after the shooting, uh, they wouldn't let me outside the, outside the police station. So I had to work in, in, in the, um, the station office dealing with people coming in uh, with public inquiries uh, for a couple of weeks. But after that, uh, uh, they let me out, uh, and it was that was a relief to get out to get to, to get back into some normality and to get back doing the job that I, you know that I'd always wanted to do. Um, yes, it was hard. Um, it was difficult, um, but um, it was probably the best way to do it at that particular time. Um, and it didn't change the way I dealt with anything. It, you know, it, it, um, you just carried on as normal. Were you privately looking into ways that you could hold the individuals accountable through the latter parts of your career before you left policing? Were you, were you making inquiries? Were you trying to figure out what you could possibly do to... To, to, to bring somebody to justice for for killing your friend? 
Well, I, I obviously knew an investigation was taking place, and um, you know, a squad was 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 uh, was doing the investigation. But what I found was that if I were, you know, when I was asking questions or asking to meet various people, uh, it would always be negative. Um, I wasn't being told anything apart from giving an initial statement at the time. Nobody ever asked me anything else. Uh, I was never provided additional information. Um, and I thought that was a bit strange, uh, to say the least. Bearing in mind, now any murder is abhorrent. Any murder is abhorrent. Um, but, uh, you know, the murder of a police officer doing, doing the duty uh, for the people of London, I think it, it is especially abhorrent. Um, and we should pull out the stops, all the stops, um, to arrest and, and, and lock away those people responsible. I didn't think that was happening. For some reason, I, I didn't know what it was at the time, um, but to my mind, that wasn't happening, and something was amiss. It took you 38 years, um, but finally, as you describe, after a long, hard struggle, you personally took proceedings against uh, Salah Mabruk in the High Court of London, and you won your case, which is quite phenomenal, holding somebody accountable for, as you describe, an abhorrent crime against a public servant employed to protect and serve the members of the public who both live, work and visit London. Finally, some justice for her friend and colleague who held her in his arms after she fell. This has been a battle lasting 37 years. It's a huge weight off my shoulders. My promise to Yvonne Fletcher as she lay dying to find those responsible for shooting has, has taken a huge step forward after all these years. After leaving policing, why did you make it your mission to bring somebody to justice? You have to remember the promise I made to Yvonne. Um, I told her I would find out who and why she'd been shot. Um, to my mind, nothing um, was being done uh, from the official side. Uh, so I started doing my own investigations. Now, you have to remember that uh, Sally Mabruk was arrested in uh, 2015. He was arrested for conspiracy to murder and money laundering, along with his, his wife and son. At a very early stage, the money laundering was dropped. And his wife and son were re released uh, from, from any inquiry, but he remained on bail. Um, a report was then submitted to the Crown Prosecution Service by the Metropolitan Police, um, which basically said that this guy must be charged with conspiracy to murder. Um, however, the Crown Prosecution decided they wanted two more pieces of evidence, and that was evidence from the Foreign Office and evidence from the Home Office. And the, this, the, the CPS said, unless they got that evidence in evidential form, they could not bring charges. The Home Office and the Foreign Office refused to hand over that evidence on the grounds of national security. Uh, so without um, that, that uh, vital evidence, um, he was released and never charged. Um, now, I, as I say, I'd done my own inquiries. I, I had a lot of evidence myself. I didn't know what the police had at that particular time, uh, but I was convinced that he was the right man. Um, so my only option then was to get that information, to get that evidence out into the public domain, I would have to sue him in the High Court in London. 
so I issued proceedings uh, against Mabruk in November 2017. In January 2018, for example's sake, he was advised about the homeless. Now bear in mind at this particular time in, in November 2017, he was living in, in the UK. Uh, even though he'd been deported, he was allowed back in, given, given a British passport, uh, but he was living in Reading in Berkshire. Again, I didn't know that. Um, so I issued proceedings against him in November 2017. In January 2018, he's advised by the Home Office in an official letter, which I've seen, to leave the UK. He does. He leaves his wife and family behind. He goes back to Libya. Whilst he's out of the UK, the Home Office, the Home Secretary, then revokes his UK passport, which means he can never come back. Now, is that coincidence that that should happen a few days after I issued proceedings against him? I don't think so. Um, so there is something to prove. Um, however, that didn't stop me. Um, I, I carried on. And um, on November the 16th, we uh, had uh, judgment against him in the, in the High Court. And in the judgment given by Lord Justice Spencer, one of the, the, the lines that sh shouts out at me, bearing in mind that this is a senior High Court judge, mm. he said, if this matter came before me in a criminal court, I would convict. Now, wow. that means that we don't need the evidence which has been withheld. As far as I'm concerned, we've got enough evidence to proceed to a criminal trial. But for some reason, the Crime Prosecution Service still refused to charge him with conspiracy to murder. Um, so my next step, um, if they're not going to do that, will be to take a private criminal prosecution against Sally Mabrook. So, just, so the proceedings that you took against Mabrook in the High Court in London and one were they civil proceedings? They were civil proceedings. Yeah, they were civil proceedings. I, I sued him for the princely sum of one pound. It may be the final chance to bring the justice that PC Yvonne Fletcher deserves. Today, that long walk to it arrived at the High Court. John Murray, along with many of Ms Fletcher's former colleagues, has brought a civil claim against the man alleged to have orchestrated the shootings. Uh, the, the reason being that um, I didn't do it for compensation, I didn't do it for money, I, do it, I did it for the simple fact of justice. Uh, because justice to me, and hopefully you know, anybody listening to this, is, is priceless. Is priceless. Um, so it wasn't about money, it, it was about getting the evidence that I've got heard in court, get it out in the public domain and let other people decide. And if it, and it, if it can convince a High Court judge of, of uh, Mabruk's guilt, then I'm sure it, it, you know, we will be uh, in, in the same position when, when, uh, when we go to the criminal court, because what I want is a criminal conviction against uh, Sally Mabruk, and see see what happens from from there. Um, I mean, I was lucky because, um, believe it or not, three days in the High Court in London uh, cost us four hundred and forty three thousand uh, pounds. Wow. Now that was yeah, that was our costs. Now 
Um, I put all my life savings into that, um, but I was lucky um, because I, even with that, we, I came nowhere near it. And uh, I did uh, get some additional funding from the police federation, the police union he, here in the UK. And um, I got a lot of donations from serving officers and from form, former officers from all over the world. Uh, without their help, I could not have done what we did. It's quite incredible to hear that, that you spent your entire life savings on bringing to justice an individual that is suspected and in your mind reasonably believed to be involved in the murder of your friend and colleague, Yvonne Fletcher. What was the evidence that you had to show that this gentleman was involved in this horrific crime? Well, I mean, there's all sorts of evidence. I mean... We we managed to get uh, prior to the hearing we, we we got a court order a high court order, uh, which meant that um, uh, the, the the police had to hand over the uh, the evidence that they had, uh, and that really corroborated what we had because uh, you have to bear in mind that um, I I'd been to Libya um, um, about seven times now uh, in the run up to my my high court case. Uh, I went over there alone uh, and I made inquiries myself and I met various people over there. In fact, I was getting more help from, from the Libyan people than I was getting from the UK government because every time I wrote to a Prime Minister or I tried to speak to a Prime Minister or a Home Secretary or a Foreign Secretary, I, I would always get a blank. Uh, I would get no response at all. Um, so those people were helping me. Um, and it really corrobor- corroborated what, you know, what, what I had. Um, if, if I wasn't confident in, in, in the evidence that I had obtained, then you know I wouldn't have gone to the High Court. Um, but we, I, I had a good legal team behind me, um, very expensive legal team, but worth every penny. And um, you know, we, we, we got a historic result, and it's, it's a, it was a result which I think a lot of people didn't think we would get, um, but we did it. Um, you know, I mean, you've also got to remember that on the sixth of July this year. Um, that uh, Mabruk actually appealed against that judgment in the appeal court, uh, and again he lost. So Mabruk, do you believe he's the man that planned it, or he's the gentleman that actually pulled the trigger? No, he's the man who planned it. He's the man who planned it. He gave the order. The orders came from Lib- Libya to him. He, he set it up. He planned it all. Um, he arranged it all. Uh, hence, the conspiracy to murder, as opposed to murder. Mm. So we so we don't know to this day who the individual actually was who pulled the sh- who pulled the trigger. In one of my trips to Libya, I met the person who pulled the trigger. I, I met him in, in a hut in uh, just outside Benghazi. Wow! Uh, was, there was me and him face to face, nobody else there at all. Uh, and um, he told me his story. I told him my story, and and we left it at that. And now I understand that uh, a few weeks. After that meeting, he, he he was actually shot and killed. John, what was that meeting like? It was absolutely horrendous. Um, um, I've never been so frightened. <laughs> I've never been so frightened, you know, uh, for for such a long time. Um, but then again, um, as I say, in, in Libya, I, I had people I could trust. They did look after me. One or two occasions, they, they did save my life. Um, so I could trust them. Um, and, and I still do, and I still speak to them, and I will still meet them. In fact, I'll be going back to Libya probably in the early part of next year. Um, but it, it, it was very, very difficult. But he told me his story, uh, and, and I can understand it, and I can understand why he did it. But that, that's a matter for him, you know. 
And and did you record that interview? Did you you know obviously that, that's really important evidence for you and for this. No, for, we, for no I, 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 I couldn't record. I, I couldn't record anything. I couldn't have a, uh, a, a telephone with me. I couldn't have a camera with me. I, I, I could not I have nothing at all. I mean, I was searched before I went in there. Um, so no, yeah, I only wish I could because that would that would prove it. Uh, you know, once and for all, but I, I I couldn't do that. How dangerous was it going to Libya and carrying out these inquiries, which you're still doing today? Well, if I give you one example, it's that meeting. As I say, I've been over there a few times. After that meeting, we we came out into the street, and um, one of my colleagues over there said, "John, they used to call me Mister John, Mister John." He said, "Take these binoculars. Look over there." He gave me the pair of binoculars. I looked over there, and there in the distance were the black flags of ISIS. I always remember that. <laughs> oh, my God, John. That's incredible. Yeah, so that must have been an incredible moment for you. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was. It was. Yeah, it was. So how, how did you manage to locate this individual and to be able to get to Libya to have this conversation with him? That was through contacts over there. Um, as I say, I speak to him. You've got to remember that a few of the, the, the Libyan students who'd been shot that day, they're they now back in Libya. So they were helping me as well. Um, and uh, on my first visit to Libya, I, I went with the, the BBC. Um, we did a, a, a big uh, programme for, for BBC News years ago. Um, and whilst I was there, I managed to pick up some contacts as well. Um, um, I've always found the, 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 the Libyan people um, so good and, and, you know, so good, so, so honest, um, because they all knew the story of Yvonne Fletcher when, you know, when I spoke to them, and they all said they wanted justice for her. So what's your next plans with this investigation and the private criminal prosecution that you want to carry out? How is that going? Well, what I'm, what I'm actually hoping for is the crime to the crime prosecution service to actually change your mind and um, prefer charges against Sally Mabrou. Even though he's in Libya, it doesn't matter. He, he can still, um, if he wants to appear in court here, he can. He can do it by video. He can he, he can do it by all sorts of things. But he can be heard in abstention, so there's no problem there. If they don't do that, <clears throat> what I'm doing at the moment, uh, and um, I spoke to my lawyers the other day, um, I will be issuing a private uh, criminal prosecution. Um, I'm, I'm appealing for funds um, to support me doing that at the moment because, uh, believe it or not, that's quite expensive as well. Mm. Um, but hopefully, as I say, the CPS will do it. Now, if they don't, I, I will do it, um, and I will see him in court, and I will get him convicted, uh, and we will win again. And then my story will be over because I've done what I've set out to do, uh, what I promised her I would do, and I can do no more. Am I right in saying that the Attorney General would have to approve those charges of uh, conspiracy to murder, being that they are so serious for a private prosecution? Not as far as I'm aware, because, I, again, I've looked into that. What could happen, and it is a possibility, although if it does happen, I think there would be an outcry, is that with any private criminal prosecution... The Attorney General <clears throat> can't take it over. Mm. Uh, the CPS can take it over. Yeah. And they can offer no evidence. They can they can stop it in its tracks. <clears throat> but I think in this case, if, if they did that in the Yvonne Fletcher case, there will be such a public and political outcry they'd never heard before. So I doubt if 
they would do it. As I say, there's a possibility they will, and they could, but I don't think they will, because that would be a slap in the face to every, to every serving police officer, not only in the UK, but all over the world, and to former police officers as well. So I doubt if they would do it. Are you still in contact with Yvonne's family? I know you said her mother and father have sadly passed away, but I assume she's got family members who you who you communicate with in terms of what you've achieved. Yeah, she's she, she's got two sisters who who are, who are, who I uh, do speak to, um, and actually, for next year uh, in 2023, on the 17th of June 2023, uh, I'm arranging a black tie dinner bowl. Now, that's to celebrate what would have been Yvonne's 75th birthday. Uh, sorry, 65th birthday. Um, got a, At the moment, got about 400 people coming to that. Um, but that shows you the, the support we've got. My support or our support for, for Yvonne uh, in Parliament is growing daily. Um, you know, I've been to Parliament several times. We've had meetings there. We've had debates there. Questions have been asked of, of, of the Prime Ministers. And now... We get, we're beginning to get some answers. It's very, very, very slowly coming out. Um, there's a little further to go, and I will keep going, but I will not rest until I get the justice that she deserves. Do you have a sense of pride of what you've achieved so far? One individual almost creating a movement to recognise the abhorrent crimes of others against your friend and colleague. There must be a great sense of pride there. I wouldn't say it's pride. Um I'm nobody special, um, you know. I'm I'm just your ordinary guy in the street, a, a, a former, you know, old police officer, if you like. Um, but that's the way we were, you know, back in the seventies. We looked after each other, uh, and if I said to you I'm going to do something, I would do it. If I said to you I promise you this, then I will do it. <clears throat> if I'd been shot and killed that day, you wouldn't be speaking to me now. You'd probably be speaking to Yvonne because she would be doing exactly the same as me. You never give up. And that was going to be my next point, is that I know that you're saying that you're just another ordinary police officer from the 70s, but you're an ordinary chap doing an extraordinary thing, you know, and I'm sure she looks down incredibly proud of the things that you have achieved for her and for her family in terms of bringing these individuals to justice. It's um, incredible. But one question I wanted to ask you was, is throughout policing, you know, we come across different issues which offer us challenges in overcoming grief and confronting scenes and managing stress and the emotion behind all of these this whole ordeal hasn't been just a short one it's almost been your lifelong uh, commitment to Yvonne and her family in, in bringing justice to the individuals responsible how has that affected you emotionally well it, it, it has affected me I mean over the years, I've had three heart attacks. Um, I woke up one day in intensive care um, with a priest by my bed. <laughs> um, um, it, 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 it has affected me quite a lot. Um, you know, it's, it's probably affected, you know, I'm, I'm divorced now, but I've, I've got two daughters. It probably affected them as well because I put a lot into this. And I probably, whilst they were growing up, I've, probably ignored the things that I should have dealt with with them uh, because of what I've been doing. Um, but I, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, they're immensely proud of what I've done. Uh, they support me uh, 100%. Um, um, and as I said, 
you know, to my daughters, I'm on, I'm not doing this for myself. I'm not really doing it for everyone. I'm doing it for all the men, boys, girls, women out there who are doing the job today, because I think it's important for them to know if something happens to them, and God forbid it does, but if something happens to them and the authorities don't take any action, that someone somewhere will do it for them. And I think that's most important. You mentioned a short little while ago that after speaking to the individual that had admitted to you that he was the chap that pulled the trigger on that fateful day in 1984, uh, that he lost his life shortly after that conversation. I'm going to assume, and but I'll, I'll have you confirm this, is do you feel that, that your conversation and his passing are connected? And, and my second question that is, do you fear for your own safety dealing with this matter? Uh, and answered your first question, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I think you're right there. Uh, and yes, uh, I have felt um, for my own safety on, on several occasions. Um, there, there's, a few, there's a few things uh, happened to me in the past, which which I won't go into. Um, but um, I'm big enough and, and, and old enough to deal with those things. And uh, <clears throat> it would be rather ironic, I think, if something happened to me, because that would prove my point and my campaign and my case. What's the support? You said your daughters are incredibly proud of what you've achieved. Have you been able to talk about your feelings and thoughts about this with your close family and friends and, and tell them kind of what you're going and kind of share that, that, that emotional burden that we were just talking about? I do. I mean, I, I, I do tell them um, most of the things that I am doing and, and what I intend to do. Um, with social media these days, um, all their friends mm. uh, are watching on social media and, and, and reading what I do anyway. Uh, so they, they're all aware of it. Um, it's, uh, I don't know, they're proud. I, I wouldn't do anything, you know, that would uh, put them in danger or, uh, you know, without their approval. And I assume that every year on the anniversary of Yvonne's passing, do you visit the placard which is in place for where the incident occurred? Do you, do you visit her, her gravesite? What, how, how do you celebrate Yvonne's life every year going forward? Well, on the 17th of April every year, uh, I arrange a memorial service. Um, 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 it's, it's normally attended between three and 400 people. Um, we have a service in St. James's Square at the, the Memorial Stone. Uh, we lay wreaths and flowers. Um, you know, there's a few speeches, um, all sorts of things. Um, we all get together um, and we're all united in the same thing. And that's to get justice for her. Um, we do that every year. We'll, I mean, we will continue to do that every year uh, and just to make sure that the Yvonne will never be forgotten and she shouldn't be. Well, John, the last hour of conversation about your career and which has been one which is quite incredible in terms of what you've had to deal with and the challenges of the fallout from that tragic day in April 1984. But more importantly, Everything you've done after leaving policing to get justice for Yvonne is quite incredible. And uh, I feel in incredibly honoured to be in your company, albeit virtually, um, to, to hear of the trials and tribulations and the challenges that you faced in bringing justice. And I suppose I can only, on behalf of my team, thank you ever so much for your public service, what you're doing for Yvonne and for all of us, either as current or serving or former serving police officers, it's quite incredible. It's it's a voice which has been heard. Uh, you've got some, you know, uh, resolution in your efforts in in recent 
court findings and and i hope that your private prosecution is a successful one um so on behalf of my team at the protect and serve podcast thank you for your service again and we wish you all the best with uh what's coming in the future and 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 have our fingers and fingers crossed that you get the answers that you want so that you can hang your hat up for the final time and know that you've done what you set out to do thanks very much Oliver. that's very much appreciated um i will certainly keep you updated um there's no doubt i we will win again no doubt about that whatsoever uh, and as i say you're quite right i can hang up my my hat and, and finally retire um i don't know what i'll do once i do retire here to do that but uh, that's another story all right. Well, thank you very much, Don. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you for the past hour and we, we wish you all the best for the future. Thanks very much. The Protect and Serve podcast wish to pause and remember the life of Yvonne Fletcher, a young police officer who made the ultimate sacrifice doing exactly what was expected of her at the time of her death. She was protecting and serving the people of London. Her death will never be forgotten and we stop to pause and remember the pain still felt by her family today as a result of her tragic death on the 17th of April, 1984. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production, hosted by Oliver Lawrence, research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynne Stanley, Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.